Welcome back, everyone. Craig and Jonah here. I'm happy to have a guest. It's been a while since we did an interview. We have Father, is it Longnecker? Longnecker. All right, I'll do my best to get that uh, right. Um, I've heard of you before, uh, and then I ran into you on Twitter, and I was kind of putting out some uh, some inquiries. I was looking for a Catholic married priest, if possible, and your name got mentioned, and you were kind enough to respond to my email and and came on and we had some exchanges uh ahead of time about some of the things we were interested in so um it, i know we have uh, somewhat limited time but would you introduce yourself to those that don't know you and tell a little bit about yourself and then we'll get right into it yeah i was brought up in pennsylvania in an evangelical uh, protestant home and um in, in college went to a college college named Bob Jones University. But at college, I became an Anglican and very um, fond of everything English. Uh, and so uh, I uh, felt a call to the, the Anglican priesthood, went over to England to study, became an Anglican priest for 15 years, then converted to the Catholic faith. And then 10 years later, came back to the U.S. to be ordained as a Catholic priest, although I was married, under the pastoral provision for married former um, Protestant ministers. And all of this has been um, just published in a new book called there and back again oh okay uh which is my conversion story which has just been published by ignatius press there and back again because i came from uh the u.s went to england and came back again okay well you could still you still have the the beautiful accent <laughs> well, not very much i've been here for almost 20 back here for about 20 years now so it's um it's faded quite a bit but my wife is english so she's the real thing I was I was wondering about that. Uh, you found her when you were over in England, then. That's right. Okay. Do you have any children? Four. Okay. And how are they adults now? I don't have yeah, any. Yeah, they're idea. all they're all in their twenties and are um, out of the nest. Okay. Uh, so, like, how old were you when you got ordained? So I was uh, twenty-eight when I was ordained as an Anglican priest, yeah. and then I was fifty when I was ordained as a Catholic priest back here in the U.S. Okay. All right. Um, and I don't know much about the Anglican church. Is it, is there different uh, versions of it? Uh, more of a uh, Orthodox yeah, liberal the version? Or... The Anglican church is another name for the church of England. Right. Uh, and it's basically the Episcopal church, but in England where it all started. Okay. Um, so uh, I want to, I want to hone in on sort of the differences between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church, and since our audience, we do a lot of talking about marriage and intimacy and the quote-unquote rules. Uh, can you can you help me understand any of the big differences, small differences between what you believed as an Anglican and what we believe as Catholics in terms of birth control and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, the Anglican Church was actually at the forefront of the Christian churches accepting artificial contraception. Before the 1930s, artificial contraception was considered to be sinful and vulgar and just basically dirty and bad by all Christians. Um, something which was low and base, which a man would not do, uh, and certainly a woman would not do. You heard stories about, um, you know, soldiers in the Second World War being given a packet of condoms, uh, but it was considered to be a grubby, dirty thing. And then in the 1930s, uh, 
at the Lambeth Conference, I believe it was anyway, a, a conference in England, in the Anglican Church was the first mainstream church to actually say contraceptives, artificial contraceptives were okay. Uh, and they said, of course, as these things usually go, they hedged it about with all sorts of um, conditions, you know, that things like uh, in certain circumstances, married couples under the advice of their pastor and the doctor may be able to use these um, technologies for the spacing, the careful spacing of the planning of their family. Um, and said, of course, these things should not be used to promote promiscuity and so forth and so on. But they basically opened the door to artificial contraception. And then the other Protestant denominations soon followed. And of course, it was the Catholic the Catholic Church was the only church actually held to the um, you know, centuries-old tradition that these things were considered to be um, evil. So uh, how about, uh, we talk about birth control, how about other stuff like masturbation or other types of things uh spouses can do what what was well, sort of once, the angle yeah once once that sort of um barrier fell um then it wasn't long before uh the anglican church considered continued to go down the, the path of sexual um tolerance shall we say tolerance of se all sorts of sexual activity uh which of course blew wide open with the sexual revolution and you need to understand one thing about the anglican church the anglican church has was founded by henry the eighth in the 16th century in a way of conforming the church to the spirit of the age the spirit of the age then was uh protestantism uh nationalism uh the nation state and uh, the rule of of uh nation state monarchs and so henry the eighth sort of putting his finger to the wind, saw which way the wind was blowing and created the Anglican Church, which is a Church of England with the monarch as its head. And uh, therefore, in every age, it is adapted to the spirit of the age. That's how it was founded. That's its sort of genetic code. So it should come as no surprise that in the 1960s, um, the Anglican Church did not really stand up against the um, sexual revolution. And now, of course, the Anglican Church has women priests, and they're debating the the, the legitimacy of same-sex marriage in, ch in church, having already accepted same-sex blessings. Um, regarding other sexual practices that Catholics would continue to say are intrinsically uh, disordered, the Anglican Church would just step back judgments and you know, would usually say, you know, masturbation, meh, not so bad. Um, mm -hmm. Sodomy, um, whatever people do in their, in their, we don't have any bedroom police, okay? Mm -hmm. They would say, what you do is between you and your conscience. And now that's completely blown wide open. So um, even in factories, Anglican clergy houses, you will find the every kind of mix of, of modern uh, sexual sort of uh, alternatives. Uh, divorce and remarried clergy, uh, same-sex uh, married clergy, um, divorce, living with some clergy, um, cohabiting clergy, so forth <laughs> and so on. You find every permutation, and the basic, the basic sort of rule now is: don't ask what goes on in the in the in the 
clergy house bedroom. Wow. Was that uh, at all uh, part of what led you away from the Anglican Church, or you? Well, when I paint that picture, it's the, I left the Anglican Church in 1995. So, mm -hmm. what is that? Um, Thirty years ago now, almost. And um, of course, it's not that explicit because English people are very polite people. Yeah, okay? they right. don't talk about these things, <laughs> but that's the reality. Um, uh, I, I left the Anglican Church mostly over the debate over women's ordination to the priesthood. The Anglican Church was debating this on every level, from the parish level up to the um, general synod, as they call it. And that debate was so was actually, I try to be open-minded. I was, although I am by nature and upbringing conservative and was opposed to women's ordination, I tried to listen to the other side, and they actually have good arguments. However, um, I realized that this was making me confront what I call the Protestant problem, and that is, what do you do when uh, two groups of Christians who are both sincere and read their Bible and pray and you know worship disagree about a major issue? You can only say, well, I guess it wasn't really important, we'll stay together, or yeah, it was important, we're going to go our separate ways and start our own, start our own church or go somewhere else. Um, and the Catholic Church actually had an authority system, not just the Pope, but a whole authority system, which was uh, universal, both geographically, in other words, they were able to consult with uh, Catholics all over the world, but also historically, able to consult with 2,000 years of tradition, um, and that that authority system was universal in its appeal and in its strength, uh, and therefore that's why I became a Catholic, not just because of women's ordination, mm -hmm. but because of the authority question that underlies that question. Did, did you explore, look at like any of the Orthodox or other, I guess, non-Catholic or Eastern Catholic, or how did you end up on the Roman Catholic side of things? Because I'm a Western European man, right? You know, I, I, I love the Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy and so much about it, their worship, their liturgy, their spirituality, their pneumatology and so forth. Um, however, I'm not Greek or Russian. Right. Okay? <laughs> and, and and I felt that um, even though I could grow a long beard and call myself Father Innocent or something, um, <laughs> uh, I'm not mocking them. I have a lot of respect for them. But I, the thing is, I'm not Greek or Russian. And um, I'm a Latin, I'm a Latin, uh, my, my, my faith is derived from the Latin church. So when I went home, that's where I went to. So um, I'm curious then, and before we totally leave the um, Anglican end of things, but just in terms of the concept of sin, of course, we as Catholics have, you know, whole concepts of heaven and hell and mortal sin, venial sin, confession. Is, is there, Are there any remnants of that in the uh, Anglican church as it was when you left, or how would you compare them? Now, Anglicanism, like most Protestantism, is highly individualistic. So um, you will find some Anglicans who practice confession, uh, some Anglicans who have a high view of Catholic moral theology, others who have no idea about it at all, others who are very low church and Protestant in their understanding, who basically it's all about how much you love Jesus kind of thing. So... Um, the Anglican Church, per se, does not really have a magisterium. It doesn't have an official teaching other than the Articles of Religion, which were established in the 16th century. 
So you were a, a lay Catholic um, for about 10 years, and then you became ordained. Are you a diocesan priest then? Yes, I was ordained for the Diocese of Charleston in uh, 2006, uh, and so I'm a diocesan priest. I'm curious, were there any <clears throat> any components of Catholicism, whether it's related to sort of the, you know, the the morality rules that we just talked about or otherwise that you found the most difficult to either understand or, or appreciate given your background? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I appreciated the Catholic um, clarity on moral issues. However, I realized with that clarity very often goes a, um, a legalism and a, very, sometimes a kind of Jansenistic Puritanism uh, that goes along with those rules and regulations that there could be, I, you know, I came from a very fundamentalist evangelical background, which was highly legalistic in many ways. Um, when I heard Catholics complaining about Catholic guilt, I said, hey, the Catholic <laughs> Church doesn't have a monopoly on that, okay? <laughs> um, and uh, so Anglicanism, with its ambiguity and its open-endedness, was a kind of freedom from the fundamentalist legalism and so I was wary of the tendency within Catholicism to lapse back into uh, a kind of legalism based on the clarity of their moral teaching. And therefore, and, learning more about the Catholic moral teaching and Catholic moral theology has been encouraging because I realized within Catholic moral theology, they, the moral theologians actually acknowledge this tendency towards legalism and use both canon law and moral theology um, in a very compassionate way, allowing for human weakness and allowing for the reality of life uh, and, and what things are really like, both with the sacrament of confession, but also with its application of moral theology. So, in other words, that same Catholic authority system which attracted me also had the capability to administer moral theology, a, cl a clear moral theology, in a way that was full of also full of common sense and realism. Okay. Um, well, be beforehand, I sent you what what I sort of consider this triangle or these three pillars of Catholic morality, or at least. Uh, marriage morality uh number one being no birth control number two being no masturbation or other types of activities and number three violations are potentially a mortal sin that that three part package is what sort of i don't know keeps <laughs> keeps me up at night sometimes and i know a lot of a lot of men that we talk to really struggle with that uh, is that it all relate to how you see things, and can you comment on that one way or another? Yeah, let me just put this into a, a larger context, okay? okay? Um, Catholic moral theology regarding sexuality, of course, is rooted in natural law. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically says, I'll be frank here, basically says, look, your genitals are for procreation. That's what they're designed to do. Okay, just like your teeth are designed to chew your food and your digestive system is designed to digest it and turn it into energy uh, and then and then eliminate the waste. That's what your body does. That's what it's used for. You don't use it for something else. And to use it for something else for your own pleasure or for your own gratification 
is an abuse of that natural order. Now, I get that, and I agree with it, and I'm thankful for it, because it gives us a um, solid basis in reality. However, the reality we live in in the 21st century is not natural. Okay. I read an article some time ago about a tribe in some primitive area. I don't know whether it was in the South Pacific or in Amazon or somewhere. And the sociologist went in and said, you know, this is amazing. This tribe does not have any idea about um, pedophilia or homosexuality or any kind of the perversions which we or transsexuality or any of the kind of perverted ideas of sexuality we have in the modern world. They have this kind of um, innocence about sex. And then they said, in observation, here's how they live. They live in the jungle on a subsistence hunter-gatherer, um, uh, you know, sort of economy. The boys begin having sexual relations with the girls when they're 14 or 15 the girls begin having sexual relations when they're 12 or 13. They start having babies. They have lots of babies, but of course, there is a high rate of infant mortality. There's a high rate of maternal mortality. And the lifespan for these people is usually no more than 45. So you want natural law. You want mm -hmm. a natural life. That's natural. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> We don't live that way. Right. Okay. So, therefore, it seems to me that that whole consideration is something which we have to throw into the mix and say, well, how do we live? You know, a boy in our society <clears throat> um, is aware of his sexuality at maybe the age of 12. He might not get married for another 10, might not get married for another 20 years, and that would be considered normal. He would be encouraged not to get married for at least another 10 years. Right. Years, if not another another 20. Um, so there he is with a body that is maturing and a sex drive, which is maturing. And we're saying to him, sorry, you got to keep your pants on and sleep alone for the next 20 years. No wonder our society is about sex. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when it comes to married life, if we're living naturally, then does the church, if a woman is young and fertile and she marries at 20, is she really supposed to pop out a baby every 18 months? Is the church really expecting her to be bearing children in, what for the next 25 or 30 years? Because with advanced health care, she could be fertile until she's 45 or 55. So... While I support the church's teaching, and of course not for me to undermine the church's teaching, I'm saying these are the realities of the modern world that we live in. And as past husbands and fathers, it's something we have to wrestle with. Now, when you throw into that mix the effects of the um, contraceptive technologies, the sexual revolution, pornography, which is available, any kind of pornography which is available at the touch of a button, um, the whole thing is the whole thing is an absolute shipwreck when you talk and yet we go back and say yes but we're following natural law the whole world is not natural about this stuff that's for sure sorry i'm getting a little bit passionate about it keep going <laughs> but you, you you see what i mean 
Yes. And I don't know what the answer is, because the answer is not to say, well, you know, we live, everybody can really do whatever they want now. That's not the answer. <laughs> well, we have some theories, but we're really afraid of being called heretics if we dare mention them. So we just, that's how we go out searching well, go, for answers and go ahead and go ahead and say what you want to say because you know speculative theology is always um is always permitted but here this this concept would make a lot of sense to me as a catholic man i've been married for 20 years we have nine kids we're hopefully near the end of that uh, fertility window <laughs> but uh, the so the church's teaching on birth control makes a lot of sense to me uh, as a husband who is well aware of the natural cycles of my wife and all that. It's a gift and a blessing. Um, but there's abstinence for sure. Some of it is if you're trying to avoid children, some of it is imposed because you have babies around and children. If, if it were permissible for men to achieve a sexual release that was licit, even if not intercourse, whether alone or with his wife, preferably with his wife. Uh, to me, that is a manageable situation for most men and women. But depending on who you ask, I mean, I know what the catechism says on masturbation. I know what 2352 says, although it's not super clear to me what exactly it means and what the uh, circumstances are that diminish culpability. But if a husband and wife want to engage in acts, whether it's onanism or whatever, uh, I really struggle to understand how they're uh, to to live completely hands off each other, perhaps for extended periods of time, lest their souls be jeopardized. If that was not the case, or if it wasn't potentially leaving you in hell, I think that is a very viable solution for most uh, couples that they don't need to be using birth control, can be open to life, but not, let's say, having dozens of kids. So what do you want me to say? Masturbation is not a sin? <laughs> I'm not going to contradict the catechism. Sorry. I know that. Uh, I, I, think, I think it would be nice if there was... It, well, first of all, do you have an opinion as to whether the church clearly says mutual acts uh, between a husband and wife that did not involve intercourse, but involve orgasm. Are those morally listed or not? I don't know whether you've read any, ever read any of the old books on moral theology, but some of them are talk about legalism. I mean, there's some, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but there's some that will say things like if the a husband touches the, between the elbow and the upper shoulder, it is not a sin, but should he, touch her between the shoulder and the breast and not lead to full intercourse which is open to life that would be a mortal sin and so forth and so on you know and that concept is, not, is something which doesn't get us anywhere mm -hmm. uh, i understand why these rules were put in place to help confessors to be able to help people to you know inform their conscience but it's difficult and i we can we have to avoid that legalism and that's where it gets tricky because like with 2352 there's uh different reasons that might lessen culpability and so it just 
I think about this, like, who is it a mortal sin for? Or where is it most likely to be a mortal sin? Um, since for most, I would think most guys don't really want to do this. And uh, it just ends up being a product of an infrequent uh, intimate life with their wife, more than likely. Well, I try to focus on the positive. And what I will say sometimes people in confession is, love your husband. Love your wife. Do not hurt one another. Do not degrade one another. Do not insult one another. And be at peace. I, you know, and that's, I agree with that too. And, be, and I, I just trust in God's mercy. And, and, and be grown up about it. You know, don't overthink things too much. And remember this culpability thing is something which you apply after you've sinned. That's before. Apply, apply it before. If you apply it before and say, oh, well, I don't think I would be very culpable if I did this, then <laughs> that's cheating. Well, that's the that's the problem I have with at least 2352. And I don't know if that idea extends to these other acts that we talked about, but it doesn't, it seems to be more designed for the for the priest that's hearing the confession and not the penitent. And I don't know how we judge for ourselves, even after the fact, whether we had sufficient culpability or not and so i think for a lot of us we just if it happens you err on no i know i think i think i think it actually does help to to help person to when they're experiencing temptation so for instance um if a guy is tempted to look at pornography okay and that pornography will very often lead to self-gratification uh there is a process in temptation which he experiences first is the thought and then there's the delight in, in which I think, first, I think I could do that. Second, that would be nice to do that. Third is the decision, I'm going to do that. That's the consent. And then the fourth is the action. So if it's meditated to that, that extent, then one's culpability, of course, increases. To stumble and fall into something which is technically a sin um, does not qualify as a mortal sin. And remember also, there's other qualifi qualifiers about one's culpability, um, the force of habit, and also circumstances and um, psychological and societal pressures, which the, the catechism doesn't specify. You... The other thing, the other thing I would say about this, of course, is that <clears throat> someone will say this rule of the catechism. Catholic Church about sex, only if you're married and only if it's open to life, it's impossible. <laughs> okay. And other men would say, what's the big deal? I haven't found it impossible. Okay. And these are ordinary men that I come to me for confession, and they're not confessing porn and masturbation, and I think they're good they're good penitents, and they're not lying. So I have to, con I have to conclude that these men who are um, healthy well-adjusted Catholic men do not find the rules impossible. Um, so which this, which leads me to then ask, well, why some and not others? <clears throat> and our whole se human sexuality is complex. I don't know why some guys are attracted to other men. I don't know why some guys have a, a an addiction to porn. I don't know why some guys are addicted to masturbation. 
these addictions or these um, impulses or these compulsions are usually deeply rooted in the person's psyche, the person's personality, the person's um, family background, the things which um, drive them to seek love and seek gratification uh, may be very deeply rooted in their personality and their psyche and not something which is totally under their control. This is not to excuse them, but it's simply to say there might be other forces which are deeper and more powerful in our lives than we're usually conscious of. And that's also one one of the considerations. Can, can I offer a suggestion or a, or an observation? I, this is, this is anecdotally from my own experience, but you know, there, I'll be perfectly frank. Um, I struggled with this issue for a long time, had a frank conversation with my wife, uh, which essentially resulted in us being more intimate more often. And for me, at least if you're intimate every three, four days, it's a complete non-issue. Uh, if if it's less frequent than that, it is an issue. There, there's a biological component to this. I'm not saying it's purely biology, but I think for a lot of men, it really comes down to what is your situation and how, how frequent are you able to be intimate? Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one, I suspect I'm not, but it, it, it does come down to that. And now my poor wife is, has been willing to undertake that, uh, knowing that even in our older age, there's a good chance we're going to have more children because she wants to keep me out of hell. (laughs) But I, I struggle with the idea that she needs to do that to, to help me um, away from this issue, which I'll be honest, it, it has made it a non-issue for me. Yeah, I, I, one of the penances I give to guys in the confessional um, over when this sin comes up is Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 has those beautiful verses about um, the Lord knows of what we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. Okay. <clears throat> he knows that he's given us these bodies that um, itch and scratch and fart and smell and <laughs> have a sex drive and, mm-hmm. and have a hunger and all the rest of it. He made us. He knows what we're doing. Okay. So this fear of hell over a mortal sin, which is a which is a natural drive, I think that's the aspect that I would de-emphasize, put it that way. Well, I, I hope that's right. Uh, I really struggled. There was a period in my life where I was near despair because I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to live consistent with this teaching without going to confession all the time. And God forbid I don't <clears throat> make it to confession after the last time. And and I was told the same thing that, that you've told me by many priests, but I don't know, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, this is my soul. Like I'm I'm the one that's going to stand before God when this is all said and done. And I, I, I think it's, a, I think it's really hard to completely eliminate that, that fear you so, have when you are yeah, dealing with that. So, okay. Something else I'd like to counsel people about mortal sin is this. If you think about the logic, what is mortal sin? Mortal sin is a sin in which I have intentionally turned away from God and gone my own way. That's the, what makes it a mortal sin. So it, 
follows then that as I confess in my heart and turn my heart and my orientation back to God, the weight of it being mortal sin is lifted, even if I haven't been to confession yet. Now, I know that may not be strict church teaching, but if I have turned my heart back to the Lord sincerely and genuinely with an intention of going to confession again, then I believe that the weight of mortal sin is listed, lifted simply by the sheer logic of it. That if I've committed this sin, which turned my heart away from God, then it makes sense that as soon as I turn my heart back to God and I ask for forgiveness, the weight of it being mortal sin is lifted. Hmm, you know, there's a logic to that. There is, yeah. I never thought about it that way. All right. <laughs> Are... Are, how unusual is are these concerns that I have uh, with with the men and or couples that you deal with as a Catholic priest? Is it are we just that rare? Is this? Can you give us any sense on that? Oh, sorry, what's your question again? Yeah, I just how frequently? I mean, <clears throat> is it a majority of men, for example, married men that have these kinds of struggles, or or are we a minority? Are we the vast majority? Is there a difference between men and women uh, that? you know, come to you for confession and are struggling with these things? We have confessions in our parish three hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, and I take one hour uh, and my parochial vicar does too. Uh, and I would say out of 10 people in confession, probably on a regular basis, five of those four or five of those will be men who are confessing to pornography and masturbation. Mm -hmm. um, maybe women, maybe one in 20. <laughs> um, it's just amazing how different that is. I don't know. Men and women have different sex drives. That's true. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, and I would say that one in 20, even that is quite, uh, probably an overestimate. I'm just saying off the top of my head. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I think it's remarkable, actually, when, I, when I'm in confession, I'm quite often deeply moved by the fact that there are actually so many men who take this seriously. Um, and I sense it's not actually because of a deep sense of fear or legalism, but they actually are ashamed of what they've done and they want to be better. And that's a beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. Well, I've said uh, the, the one fruit of that problem is it, it uh, makes confession a very regular part of your life, um, <laughs> which is, I guess, good. <laughs> I remember also the verses from St. Paul when he talks about a thorn in the flesh, which the Lord has given him yeah. to keep him humble. Yeah. Now, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. Some um, mm -hmm. biblical interpreters have thought it was a sexual sin. Others thought it was his, his poor eyesight, um, <laughs> various other things. But whatever the thorn in the flesh is, it was given to keep him humble. And I think the struggle that Catholic men have with the church's teachings on sexuality, they have the side benefit of keeping us humble. Yes. <laughs> 
Blessed are the poor, for they know their need of God. Yeah. Blessed are the sexually tempted, for they know their need of God. Amen. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, anything else you wanted to add on that that I didn't give you a chance to talk about, Father? I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to have a chat uh, and to um, hope that what some of the things I've said have been helpful. Um, as a priest who's conservative by nature and by upbringing, of course, as I said, uh, I do not contradict the church's teachings, um, but I do feel as a pastor an obligation to help my people navigate um, the church's teachings. And I loved your insight on mortal sin as far as it's something that I've often wrestled with. And just like you said, the moment you turn back to God, he's there to give you his mercy. And, you know, it's it's really what it's all about. Uh, before we uh, before we let you go, Father, um, is there any anything that we can um, uh, promote for you? Either your website, any books. I know we mentioned the one the one book, but anything else that we can promote for you while we have you here? Just go to my website, which is dwightlongenecker.com. Uh, they can browse my books there. I've written over twenty books on Catholic faith and culture. Um, I blog. I used to blog every day, but I'm getting worn out. It's been blogging for 20 years now. So, but there's lots of um, archived articles there they can have access to. So, um, okay. happy for people to visit there. Well, oh, thank that, you, the, yeah, the website is dwightlongenecker.com. So, they might want to go and visit. I'll link to that. I'll link to all that uh, below. So, well, thank you, Father. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. We were really looking forward to this. And, and your insight. And you didn't. I really appreciate it. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thank you, Father. Have a good one. Bye. Okay, over and out. <laughs>